Welcome to the Gals of Geekdom podcast. I'm Jazzy, and I swear a lot, as you know. <laughs> you joining me as usual? Joining me as usual are both Crystal and Lizzie. Say hi. Hi. And as our guest is the lovely, introduce yourself. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Stephanie, and I'm here. <laughs> I exist. <laughs> well, that's that's better than most, you True. know. You exist, so yes. that's well, something. Well, we can we can put her under the guest stars who actually exist. Got it. Okay, <laughs> got it. Yeah, I have a sneaking suspicion that Ant was actually fictional. You know, he's not real. No. We he he's he's the uh, collective embodiment of our subconscious. Yeah, and I was that was me doing the voice the whole time. <laughs> Impressed by the throwing ability there. You know, it's um, it's pretty, pretty. I'm, it's, I don't know why I'm not a voice actress. I could easily do that. <laughs> I'm trying to be a voice actress. I'll get there eventually. I am a voice actress. I'm in things, so. Yeah, that counts. I can do an Austrian voice. Good night. <laughs> I know German. Sorry, I stole a joke from Dumb and Dumber. Oh. <laughs> oh, jeez. I, I haven't know. seen that movie in so long. First scene you see is Jim Carrey as, you know, like he's he's a limo driver at the beginning of the movie. He pulls up to a stoplight and he sees this beautiful woman on the side of the street. And he stops and he crawls through the back of his car to get to where the, you know, the, the part of the limo. He pulls up. And he rolls down the window and says, you know, talks to her. She has an accent and she says she's Austrian. And his immediate reaction to go is, oh, let's throw another shrimp on the body. (laughs) (laughs) That moment always stuck with me for some reason, because it's just such a stupid joke, but it sets it up so well. (laughs) See, Jim Carrey is one of those actors that I think just kind of takes stupid jokes and rolls with them. Mm -hmm. I feel like Jim Carrey always knows what kind of thing he's what 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 kind of movie he's in yeah right i just want to see his uh parts in the sonic movie because i've heard those are the only good parts i actually actually think i actually thought the movie was good all around honestly oh okay i'll give it a shot i'll watch it with you like i think it would have been worse if they kept the original design oh god yeah like but yeah once they got it once they changed it Things just started getting better for that movie until it was released, and then it was actually kind of good, so. Yeah. The writing was pretty good, too, for the yeah, most it part. Was, yeah, it was a lot of fun, and they there was a lot of scenes that took advantage of the fact that the character is fast, so, and I think that's something that's forgotten, oddly enough. <laughs> yeah, people forget about that, huh? Yeah, like, they did, they had a couple scenes that was basically them doing the Quicksilver shit from the X-Men movie, so. <laughs> Well, I mean, there's only so you only have so many gags that that speedster characters can can do. Right, and I, I I'm not again I'm I I'm not saying how Sonic did it was bad. In fact, it, they did it quite well. Like if you want to watch a movie where they do the Quicksilver shit but bad, uh, watch uh, watch Zack Snyder's Justice League and the first scene with the Flash, and you will and you will see the Quicksilver scene but bad. I, I agree with the sentiment. I it was just, very uh, weird. Why would I ever willingly watch a Zack Snyder movie? 
curiosity if you're like me. <laughs> Fair. Can we, can we talk about briefly about how creepy that scene is, too? <laughs> yeah, like, like he's fucking, like, stroking her. the girl's hair in slow motion I, when he's supposed to be saving her. And I get that the point of a Quicksilver-like scene is that the character's kind of fucking around, but Flash is creepy, and I don't like him. Yeah. You can do that without being uh, weird and pervy. Yeah, because right. it's just like, he's like admiring the her iris and he's touched he touched he touches her hair like you said and he's just like staring at her and it's like really weird like like I, I, that whole scene i was like no you don't know this person this person doesn't know you why are you doing this i get you're destined to be together at some point because you are iris but come on <laughs> you don't know that right now <laughs> It's like, I don't know, if I were to write that scene, I would just have him, like, stop in front of Iris, and then just be like, oh, you're pretty, heart heart hands, and then, right. like, run away again. But you're yeah. approaching this from the mindset of someone who knows what to do with a quick with a Quicksilver scene. Or, or like, I mean, I I don't really know Quicksilver, but I assume he's, like, a, a dork. So, yeah, like, like, I don't know, I'd play with that. When I say, okay, so to describe what a Quicksilver scene is, it's where everything around the fast character, like, stops or is, like, in super oh, slow motion. Yeah. I, and we see, see the fast character. Ca- over the hedge scene. Yeah, and we see, like, the character moving at regular speed. And, yeah, yeah over the hedge did it first. That's you, called the over the hedge scene. I call it Quicksilver. It's because... called the Matrix bullet time. Oh, yeah. That's true. How are the two trans people here, not the ones? <laughs> I don't wear. <laughs> Here, you're gonna think I'm I'm crazy, but I've seen The Matrix, but I don't remember a thing about it. Like what? I think that uh, movie. That's because you're just, in The Matrix. I don't know. I, I think that movie just went in one ear and out the other with me because throughout most of the movie, I was like, what? <laughs> that's that movie to me when I was young. I was obsessed with. I wrote fan fiction. I I loved it so much, and now knowing that it's a trans metaphor, it makes so much fucking sense. <laughs> But, like, with scenes where you have, like, the character moving at normal speed and everything else just slowing down and stuff, right. usually the appeal is just seeing what the fuck the character's going to do at normal speed and seeing, like, kind of this domino effect go into play that you'll see the result of once things go back into normal motion. But the thing about Justice League, what they do, is not only is everything around the Flash in slow motion, he's in slow motion, too! <laughs> so, like, the Flash is in slow motion and everything around him is in slower motion. Wow, that's and, interesting. And it's bad. It's, it's, Zach, it's, it's Zack Snyder's love of slow motion for everything. <laughs> I don't know. I, I believe, like, he shouldn't make movies, but he would be great at music videos. Oh, yeah. Yes. Well, yeah, think, so I'm Zach's... like, why why are people letting him make movies? Just I'd have him do music videos. He'd be a decent, like, he'd be decent in the art direction department of films, like a, maybe a director of photography, but... He actually he actually did on that on Army of the Dead. He did the DP for that. Right, but he also directed that, didn't, didn't yeah. he? also directed, was the main and director. Wrote it. Here's the thing, I don't think Zack Snyder is an untalented person. Yeah. And, and and to pretend otherwise no. would, it would be disingenuous. Like, Zack Snyder has plenty of talent. He just... It doesn't. It's, it's the same thing I actually have said about Eli Roth in the past, which is that it's not that I think you're untalented. It's that I don't think you use that talent to make good movies, and I wish that you would. Yeah. <laughs> I think when Zach when Zach uses another a, like is given a screenplay written by someone who knows what they're doing, he does an okay job. Like Watchmen was a good movie directed by him, but that's because 
he didn't write it, and the person who did write it had some credibility to them. It was David Hayter, and yes, I do mean Solid Snake David Hayter. Yes. <laughs> um, who also wrote the first two X-Men films. So this is a someone who wrote films that are, at the very least, a decent level of quality. Yes, yeah. So that's, that's a funny tidbit that a lot of people don't know is that David Hayter wrote that. But yes, yeah, David, yeah, David Hayter is a screenwriter. He even he even did an er, a very early attempt to write um black the Black Widow movie actually like but pre MCU. Wow. Mm-hmm. But it never came to be because execs are like a woman superhero movie with no superpowers. What are you talking about? And they I looked think, at Catwoman and they were like, no. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I was thinking the same thing. Oh, true. Yeah, Catwoman really did not do the genre any favors, especially for it's, women. I think I've watched Catwoman more than anyone in the world because when I was in sixth grade, I had this weird best friend and she was literally obsessed with that movie. And she like, I don't know, I don't have opinions a lot of the time. So if someone tells me, at least back then, if someone told me something was good, I was like, sure. And so we would watch that movie over and over because she loved it. And she was like, it's a good movie. And I'm like, sure. (laughs) Sure it is. If you say so. Yeah. I like you and you like movie. So. Exactly. (laughs) Obviously, someone I like doesn't have any bad opinions. Right. You're you're dating someone who unironically likes Batman and Robin. (laughs) That's true. That's, See, no. it hasn't changed. You give Batman and Robin so much shit, and I, it's like it is so unearned to me. I blame Doug Walker, yeah. frankly. Yeah, uh, it's, it's only because like of the rampant home of like the homophobia, and it's like, uh, you know, Batman, it shouldn't be campy, and it's like it's, it's fine. Say, there's a lot of flaws, especially in the writing department with that movie. But people yeah. like the, the the things people get that the fanboys direct the ire towards with. Batman and Robin was always, always stupid. It's yeah. always, always it incorrect. Because it was the it was, best. That's the best part of the movie is the visuals and the costumes and the weirdly yeah. over the top style, campy stylistic choices. Like that's what's fun. That's what makes the movie fun to watch. Right. And it's I, a dumb. It's a dumb movie, but I enjoy watching it because it is so indulgent in how dumb it is. Like it kind of. Is aware. I think it kind of is aware that it's not Poison very good. Poison Ivy is an icon. Poison Ivy is the best fucking thing in that movie, and I will read. Like Quite Uma honestly, Thurman. The I, only thing uh, I well, okay, I don't like a lot of things about it. I've watched it once, and it was too long for me. There's um, and uh, I don't know, like my ADHD just kicked in, like super drive, and it was like, no, I don't. I, pretty much halfway through the movie, I'm like, I am so done. But um, one thing I super didn't like was just how they treated, like, Bane. Bane is, like, I don't know, he's, like, eloquent and poetic, and they're just like, nope, he's a wrestler. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's like, one that's thing I think. I guess the sense that he, they looked at the costume and just kind of yeah, didn't, and then, didn't see know. anything, read anything he actually all, did in the comic. Yeah, they just made him all muscle, no brain, which is, like... It's no. Like the well, like how intuitive to the point of Bane, that. which is that he was he he looks like this cheesy Mexican wrestler, who's actually this like extremely like philosophical, thoughtful, mm. like, uh, character. Like another thing is that a lot of people give shit to Arnold Schwarzenegger for his performance as Mr. Freeze, even though a lot of the issues with that character were solely the writing. Honestly, like. 
Like they know, I like the ice puns. They, cool they wanted him. Like yeah, they wanted him. They wanted. They wanted Arnold Schwarzenegger in this movie. What is Arnold best known for, if not dumb pun-filled one-liners? Yeah, and you know they let him have an emotional scene. That's nice. Yeah, you know, like, he moved. I, he moved his eyebrows a little bit when he was looking at his wife's corpse. I was impressed I by that. Wish, I was like, I didn't know he could move his eyebrows. I really wish, uh, like, like, if we're ever ever doing like like some more sincere critiques of Batman and Robin, <laughs> I do wish that they had struck a better balance with the character yeah. of Mister Freeze, um, with the uh, campy, goofy ice puns and the uh, sincerity of his desire to of his, his futile desire, the sincere tragedy of him, his futile desire to save his wife. Because there's so there's a lot there. Um, and I realize what a, a really, really hard tightrope that is to walk. A more talented writer than Batman Robin had, I think, could have. Right. Um, but I also, I would make the argument, honestly, maybe less so the first Batman, but at very least Batman Returns, I think does is just as sloppy in the writing department and overindulgent yeah. in its visuals as, as Batman and Robin. And I love it all the same. I love all of them. I love all of them. Like, like, yeah, for that, me, I think like, that was the issue that I had with the movie was that it went, the pendulum swung way too hard in both directions between comedy and drama. Um, and the tone itself kept changing uh, as well. This, like everything about it just kind of kept, except for the visuals kept changing. Like, uh, this is a serious drama in which, you know, Batman has to grapple with the fact that Alfred is mortal and he might die. And now for fart jokes. Like, yeah. I just, you know, I I, I was like, actually, I can't wrap my head around it. Actually, I'll give Batman and Robin this. Say what you will about the comedy. They actually did not resort to any fart jokes. So. That is true. But <laughs> they, like, showed some, they showed some class. I am... They did have, yeah. The cartoon sound effects didn't help, though. <laughs> also, also, no. Sh- I love Alicia Silverstone. Is the 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 most egregious accent I think in the history of film. Oh, yeah, it's like they, it, they're saying they're saying she's from jolly old London and she doesn't even I mean, attempt an accent. Well, she attempts an accent for the first like her, like first two scenes and it's really bad. And then they just drop it entirely. And that is so it's it's almost it is, that is almost insulting to me. Yeah, um, and the laziness of that particular. <laughs> it's it's funny because the four main Batman movies, what could be definitively called the classic era, like are so all over the place. With e- each movie is so different in tone from the last. Like you have the first Burton one, which I think is the one that struck the right, the objectively right to- right tone for a Batman story. Then you have Batman Returns, which was just full Burton. This was just Tim Burton mm-hmm. making a Tim Burton movie. That movie and that, made me so uncomfortable. Like, and I love it, but the first Batman is better because it had more overhead. I'll, I'll, I'll say I think Batman Returns is my favorite of the four just because it is a straight-up Burton film. I mean, I like it, and I like certain parts of it, but there's something... I think it's because of, like, the obvious fetish stuff that, like, as I'm watching it, I'm just like, I am watching someone masturbate. Like... Yeah. The this generation of children who now know that Tim Burton definitely has a leather fetish. Like, we know, man. <laughs> yeah, and, like, just certain things, it's just, like... Are we gonna... I felt like I... It, it felt sometimes like I was watching porn, and I'm just, like, I... Do, do I need to leave you alone? Like... So, Bert, it's so Burton so... likes leather. Tarantino likes feet. Are we gonna get, like, more, more 
directors like being obvious about things. Don't worry, don't yeah. worry. I'm keeping notes. Don't worry, I'm keeping notes on the fetish we find out of each director. Sure. I mean, <laughs> it's also that's also my superpower, which is weird because I'm a sex repulsed ace, but like I can somehow guess people's fetishes correctly. <laughs> Michael Bay likes ass. Yeah. Michael Bay just the way yeah, he ass. shoots him. Yeah, it's ass. But... Ass and sweat. Um, yeah. all of the. All of the, the women military. in his in his um, movies can't like they're never dry. They always have some a nice sheen of sweat. <laughs> but yeah. um, back to the Batman movies. Uh, Batman Forever. That was kind of that was also it was another case of a balanced tone, but leaned more towards lighthearted and goofy at times. Like, but yeah. it was lighthearted, but it had its dark moments and. Like a lot of people say, oh, Batman Forever is just a go- just a goofy fucking movie, and it is, but it has its moments where it's like, oh, this is interesting. Like, I honestly feel, and people, your taste is gonna vary, and and everyone can say which ones they do and don't like better. I honestly feel like Batman, and then Batman Returns, and then Batman Forever versus Batman Robin. I feel like these two these two sets of films have the same strengths and weaknesses just with different like paint colors on them. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. And and I, I just think that you know, the big masculine people the dealing with their internal homophobia responded better to Burton's uh, dark palette than Schumacher's uh Jolly Rancher one. Yeah. Yeah. As as is really, I really what I think it comes down to, and I am I'm the kind of person who just really really loves both. Now, personally, my ideal Batman movie has yet to be made, and I don't understand. I feel like people overthink Batman a lot to a degree that's just so unnecessary. Because the best, my obvious, basic answer here, my favorite version of Batman is the animated series for a lot of reasons. Oh yeah. Um, but Batman, I find it is that very very simple. Batman is a noir detective. Who's also a ninja? Yeah, yeah, the two. Like, that's all you need to do. You just like, and if you want to make a new Batman movie, I don't understand. Like, not that you, you really don't need to. I would be happy if they didn't make another Batman movie about Batman specifically for like another twenty years. But if you need to, I don't understand why directors aren't leaning into that. Because there hasn't really been a live action movie that does. I'm hoping because Matt if they Reeves do, does. If they do the detective thing, they have to do the the brainy thing instead See, of the explosions. See, I'm hoping Matt Reeves does something like in that direction with the um with the one he's making. I'm interested. I'm he's I'm a good interested. filmmaker. Yeah, he's a good filmmaker and I do like the idea of him making a Batman movie and I was like one of the people who was right on board with the idea of um Pattinson playing Batman because I oh, yeah. legit oh, yeah. think he's going to do a good job. Like Robert I think Pattinson so is a great actor. I, I feel like I feel on like board the, for him from the get. Yeah, I feel like the super fanboy crowd kind of gives him too much shit for the fact that he was in Twilight when because every none, everyone was bad in Twilight. It's not, like, none of these people who, if you're still shitting on Robert Pattinson for being in Twilight, and this, you know what, this isn't even a knock on you as a person, but if you're doing that, you have, like, you don't watch movies. 
Right. Yeah. Like, you see, like, whatever is the most popular film of the year, like, maybe once or twice a year, you go to the theater, and that's it. And that's fine. That's you. But Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart, by the way, have both been in so many great independent projects over the last 10 years. Like, they've absolutely. done so much great work as actors. So, like, if this is still what the first thing you think to do with either of them is make Twilight jokes, I'm like, okay, then you, I don't care about your opinion, then. Right. It because Another thing is, you're not, is, um, you're not uh, following their career at all. It's it's the Leonardo DiCaprio route when um he was in Titanic and stuff like that. Same thing. Everyone was like, oh, it's a Titanic boy, whatever. You know, it wasn't until he started in action movies that they were like, oh, he's actually yeah, okay, I respect him. But like, and same thing with Keanu Reeves. It's really only recently that you know um fanboys started liking Keanu Reeves because before they were like, oh, he's just the pretty boy that um that like says dude a lot and then he was in john wick and they're like oh never mind we like him now <laughs> so it's like they just act- have to be in a movie with guns and they'll be the coolest actor and everyone will love him pretty much but shouldn't everybody love keanu reeves regardless? everybody should yes. love keanu reeves agree yeah, speaking of movies where it's actors did long. bad british accents <laughs> <laughs> it took too I- long for everyone to realize that keanu reeves is amazing I am actually, for the record, low-key a defender of Keanu's performance in uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, uh, because this oh, is what God. I, this is something I realized, so I, last, for anybody who wants a context here, um, in my last semester of, of uh, university, I taught a class on women in horror as a student teacher, and I had a whole unit on female vampires, and I was talking about Bram Stoker's Dracula, and the, but the week before that, I had done a unit on um, the Universal Monsters. So what I realized after just watching, like, binging all of these old uh, Universal films and then watching Bram Stoker's Dracula, like, right after, is that what Keanu was going for in that movie wasn't really a... This is not to say that it was good, per se, but what, what he was going for wasn't a real British accent. It was that, like, fake transatlantic accent that was so popular in the 40s when the original Universal monster movies came out. Mm-hmm. That's what I think he was trying to emulate. That's not to say he succeeded, but I think that's why his accent is so strange in that movie sorry that's just a rant i've been wanting to go on for a long time. no i can i can see that and but, the opportunity um, presented itself but yeah i just find it funny that like you know this this fanboy crowd like holds certain roles over actors heads like you know like and i find it especially annoying with pattinson with twilight because the, that man hates twilight more than anyone else in this any of you <laughs> And and, and I can say confidently he hates it more because he's openly hated it and he was acting in it. So yeah, yeah, he, he had to shoot five fucking movies of this. Listen, Poor if dude. you if you ever want to do something just really like you ever just the funniest shit you ever heard, you should have a chill night. I super recommend Eclipse specifically watching the Eclipse commentary with Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart. It's Amazing. I, I watched it so much as a teenager. I had it was like in my computer. I watched it all the time because I they were so funny listening to them talk about making this movie. Sometimes commentaries are a lot of fun to listen to, like depending on like who it is that's talking about it. Um or even behind the scenes stuff like um I've never seen the Twilight movies, but now I am tempted to see that Eclipse commentary now because that yeah, sounds like, amazing. It's, it's so funny. Uh, there was another one. I, cause I had a Twilight. I was uh, into Twilight when I was a tween. Mm-hmm. Uh, because yeah, I was a target demographic for it. You know, I was a 12 to 
we've all ha- we all have yeah. that franchise we were into as teenagers that turned out to yeah. be super bad. I mean, mine was Transform. Mine was the Transformers movies, so I have no room to judge people who watch Twilight. So. But so the. I remember there's also a commentary on there with the director and Stephanie Meyer and just watching that one and then listening to Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart's comments. Like, it was, it's just so funny. It's hilarious. (laughs) And it's so entertaining. And I love it. It's really funny. I used to live um, in Port Angeles, which was uh, mentioned in the Twilight book. Yes, I remember. Yeah, it's just like that's for Bella Bob prom dress. Port Angeles milked it. So it was just like, Oh, it's fine. Like, you know, it's just... But then Imagine what is, Forks has been doing. What? <laughs> Imagine what the actual town of Forks has oh, been Oh, yeah, doing. I'm sure. But, like, what I loved is seeing the tourists... Because Port Angeles is nothing like what's in the book. Uh, first of all, there are naked wooden statues everywhere. Um, and, uh, like, the, the restaurant that Bella supposedly went to didn't even have the dish that... They had to make the dish because... Uh, everyone kept asking for it, and they're like, we don't make it here. Oh, fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the the movie theater that they went to, it recently closed down because it was so dilapidated. Someone almost, like, the chair fell apart, and the guy almost got impaled. Um, oh, jeez. So they were like, we should probably close it. <laughs> no, like, if, if, like, a town that's not usually in movies gets, like, one where, like, they're, they're filmed in, usually, no matter the quality of the movie, they'll take advantage of it. Like, um, I remember I visited the town of uh, Madrid, which was featured in a not-so-stellar um, Tim Allen, John Travolta comedy, Wild Hogs. Oh, no. Oh, and, yeah, I remember that movie. And they, but, and that movie's not good. But th- that town ran with it, and it was awesome. <laughs> like they, they were like, yeah, yeah, we were featured. We, we were the main setting of a shitty Tim Allen, John Travolta movie. <laughs> it it was something. awesome. Small it was towns awesome. are gonna do what they can, okay? Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. I, and I don't fault them for it. Like if you have a movie that, especially if that movie made money, because as bad as Wild Hogs is, people saw it. So true. Like I, I saw it twice with my family because they loved it, and that was tor- that was torture. Ugh. Because no, that movie's not good at all. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's so like yeah, I don't blame a small town if like they get inexplicably popular just like just from a. Oh no, I didn't gar- mind it. Regardless. It was more just. It was more like the tourists would always get pissed off. Because mm-hmm. it wasn't, like, what was in the book. And it's like, eh, sorry. Yeah. I mean, Thank you for the money, though. Right. It's like, oh, no, this fictional book said something fictional about this town. Yeah, it's clear that she's never been there. Like, Next, you're going to tell me vampires don't exist. <laughs> Wait, what? And that like, she, she, Next, you're going to tell me that the Quillian people like... are not actually werewolves. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, here's and, another know, thing. Native American they're... people aren't uh, all predators. What? <laughs> you mean they're people with like emotions right. and stuff? Right. Shocking. Like it's also funny because I also like I remember one of the biggest sources of discourse for those movies were vampires sparkling, and it's like, oh, vampires don't sparkle, and I'm just sitting there thinking, vampires don't exist. So. Yeah. <laughs> that honestly, no, no matter whatever phase of Twilight. I, interest I was in because I went through a lot of extremes with this franchise and I've never understood why the sparkling and I know I do understand why but 
the fact that the sparkling was what people zoned in on as if that mattered the tiniest fucking bit. I don't want sparkly it's just, skin. It's just as ridiculous as the fact that garlic repels them. Why garlic? Right, it's like, and, and here's the thing. I want sparkly skin. Sparkly skin's awesome. Yeah, and it's it's just like, you know, how how messed up, like, how weird, how weak sauce is your movie monster that an herb can kill them? It's, and the reason, like, the reason why, the reason there was so much hatred about Twilight in the first place, of course, is, is I'll be linked to misogyny. The vampires sparkled, and that was girly, and they didn't like that. Yeah. Oh, no. This story that has females as the main demographic has things that specifically cater to girls. And, and that's why. Oh, what. no. It was people, and, that's, and again, I will talk filth about Twilight for hours because it's terrible for a lot of reasons, but none of the reasons people were mad about. Right, what people right, were mad so. about at the time is that it was a girly franchise, that the most popular, and for a period of time, the most popular successful franchise media franchise in the in the world was one aimed at 12 year old girls and that's what people were pissed about because there's nothing grown men hate more than girls more than teenage girls right and it's funny because twilight is one of those movie series where i would probably watch it just as an ironic viewing if i wasn't so annoyed with the hate dumb of it like it's kind of weird i haven't seen it now like yeah i kind of want to just to see where they get like my hometown wrong (laughs) And just be like, that's not there. Fuck, let's, fuck, I'll get alcohol, let's watch. (laughs) You know, um. I would 100%, I'd 1,010% sit down with somebody and be like, yes, let's watch all the Twilight movies so that I can sit and I can talk about all of my complicated feelings about Twilight. Because it is The thing is, I would interrupt you and go, okay, so that's Port Angeles. The thing is, that building isn't there anymore. That has been torn down. Also, that road doesn't intersect with that road. uh, So that's bullshit. Um, And also, that's the wrong tribe uh, that is in the Port Angeles region. (laughs) Like, Because I I love my hometown so much that it would just be like, excuse me, how dare you? My friend was in it. They were scouting um, extras that were pasty enough. Um, so they, they actually went to uh, Squim, Forks, Port Townsend, and Port Angeles to just be like, who wants to be in the movie? You guys look pasty enough. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I've known people who are extras in movies, and it's always like, I, I always need to, even if the movie's not good, I always feel the need to try and watch it and find them. Like, um, yeah. a couple friends of mine were extras in It Chapter 2, which I didn't enjoy that much, especially compared to the first one. But yeah. I'm tempted to get the Blu-ray just so I can I try a, and I find them. I it. She, she made the baby noises. The hmm. creepy baby noises. Hmm. Uh, yeah, my friends were in the audience at the uh, Richie's comedy bit at the beginning of the movie. Oh, that's cool. Um, and I have a friend from my acting school from a few years ago who was an extra in Netflix's Death Note movie. Oh. <laughs> she, was part of, <laughs> she was part of the um, group of people reacting to the Ferris wheel falling apart at the end of the movie. That really hilarious part mm. that is the funniest shit ever and if you've never seen netflix's death note i highly recommend it just for that god-awful scene that's the best thing ever listen to me i can't tell you i could i could write a whole paper about listen obviously there's so much to be said about how twilight directly affected a lot of especially american-made media in Mm -hmm. the 2010s but oh my 
god. And it's so funny because Death Note came out like way too late to be capitalizing on that hype. But the I the way I could talk about how Netflix's Death Note was so desperately trying to be Twilight. Yeah. It was. Because... It was. And also the the Beastly movie. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Shit. Yes. But at least Beastly came out in like 2013. Like at least that was still when Twilight was in the popular consciousness. The 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 uh, Netflix Death Note came out in like 2017. Yeah, it did. Six it did. Years and after it was, the last Twilight movie. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, and it was <laughs> and it was clearly trying to be like one of those young adult shitey movies that <laughs> unfortunately had to I take death. Willem Dafoe in it. He was like the one good part. He was. Willem Dafoe good... was um Ryuk, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. He was great. I there liked Ryuk in the movie. I liked their design. I liked the puppetry. I liked how they worked it in with Walken's performance. That was the best part yeah. of the movie. There were two things I liked about that movie. One was Willem Dafoe. Two, I actually think Lakeith Stanfield's performance as L was super underappreciated. He did so well given the material. Then again, Lakeith Stanfield is a fantastic actor, so. Yeah. Um. Well, and I don't. Oh yes, I remember. That's the on, name. My, on my list. Oh, sorry. I'm just saying. I'll I'll see that movie eventually, just for the curiosity sake of it. But I did hear it was bad. So. Oh, it was hilarious. Yeah. This point was made by somebody I do not talk to anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, but whom sorry, I was very good friends with at the time. Um, and I still agree with it. He said to me that I think that the movie probably would have been received better if they hadn't framed it as an adaptation of Death Note, but as like a pseudo sequel. So I not trying. Yeah. Like, okay, another human has the Death Note, and because it's so different. Mm-hmm. They change so much. You change so much. People might have been let, people, people still would have been angry about it, but people probably would have been less angry about the whitewashing if this was just supposed to be a new character and not light. Right, because... Like, with this white guy. And so, like, I think, and I thought that was great. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Maybe if this hadn't been toted as an adaptation but a sequel to Death Note, then yeah. I think that it might would have been received better. I probably would have liked, like, yeah. Yeah, I think it's, I, I, yeah. It's still a funny fucking movie if you're watching it as just, like, an unintentional comedy because I think the movie's hilarious. Like, there are scenes that are way too good for me not to enjoy it on an ironic level. Like, the scene where Ryuk appears and Light's just screeching at the top of his lungs, that made me laugh so hard seeing it. Like, um... But yeah, it's I have a lot of bad movies that I just watch purely for the enjoyment of how god fucking awful they are. Yeah. Like, I, I, like, I I have an appreciation of bad movies too. I love I love bad it's, movies. It's funny because like um there was a twit tw- a tweet going on a few days ago where it was like, "Oh, post a gif or a picture of a of a movie line you hate that's stuck in your head." So I chose the I love dogs line from Jupiter Ascending. And everyone's like, oh, that movie is awful. And I'm like, the fuck are you talking about? It's the funniest movie ever made. The- you can I- quote Jupiter Ascending. I like, I like what the Wachowski sisters was trying for that movie. I think actually the movie itself isn't bad. It was just marketed wrong. It was marketed to be an action movie when they were going for more of a fairy tale kind of thing. Yeah, they were going for a space opera. Look, the reason why I find Jupiter Ascending quotable is because the dialogue is so weird, bizarre, not well written at all, and hilariously performed, especially anything said by Eddie Redmayne in that movie. Oh, man. Yeah, I have heard. But, like... I I don't know. And keep in mind, I watched... When people talk about his acting, 
I'm like, oh no, I think that's how I would describe my acting. Oh no. <laughs> Back like to acting school. The thing about Jupiter Ascending for me, its biggest problem, to honestly, is that it feels like it's adapting a book series that doesn't exist with and is trying to like inform you of like 12 books worth of lore. Yeah. Like it's just feeding you way too much. Like it's its world building was not well done because there was too they were trying to tell tell me too much. Yeah, that makes sense. But, but to go like back to appealing oh. to an audience of, for a book series that didn't exist is very much what it felt like to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To go back to an earlier point of how I don't remember The Matrix, keep in mind that the only Wachowski film I find myself actively going back to watch is V for Vendetta. So that I completely forgot yeah. that was the Wachowskis. Yeah, like I watch that every year on November fifth. I like I have a group of friends and we watch and we watch it to and we watch it together. And let's just say watching it in twenty twenty. Oh 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 oh! Some of that got uncomfortable. <laughs> like a oh, movie yeah. that a movie that I was like, huh, this is cool, this is fun, yay, fuck the government. I'm like, oh, this is all strikingly relevant. Yeah. Well, my favorite Wachowski movie is Bound. I still need to see Bound. That's on my list. It is their best movie. I'm I'm still a huge Matrix fan. I went to the theater to see it. I love that movie. (laughs) I think the sequels to The Matrix get a bad rap. I need to see them. It's been years. I've seen the first one way more than I've seen the sequels. Well, the first thing, the first one is definitely by quite leaps and bounds the best movie in the franchise. But I think that the Matrix sequels are really interesting. Uh, because I think, oh God, wait, am I agreeing with Doug Walker on something? I feel like he said this, but (laughs) I think that the Wachowskis were trying really, really hard to make, oh no, maybe it wasn't Doug Walker. I don't know. Someone said this who I didn't like and I can't remember now, but I agreed with them, which is that, um, the Wachowskis with the Matrix sequels were really trying to kind of like self-critique and self-reflect on the points they were making in the first movie. Mm. And I, and I thought, and how, how good the movies themselves are I suppose is more subjective but I always thought that the way they were trying to like deepen the deepen the philosophy of the first movie and the sequels is really interesting and admirable I I'm I I admire any artist that's willing to look at their own art and be like actually maybe I had blind spots in what I was saying (laughs) here's the here's the interesting thing about the Wachowskis there is a box set of the Matrix films where they have a commentary track on there, and it's basically just a bunch of critics who hate the entire trilogy, and they just let them go at it, and it's on the official box set. And I, I have to say, I do respect them for that. That's like I was the Wachowskis are probably like they are far from my favorite filmmakers uh, because my list of favorite filmmakers is just too long. But the Wachowskis are some of like the filmmakers I res- like, currently still working filmmakers who I respect like the most. I res- I respect their absolute refusal to do a lot of press. I respect their refusal to explain themselves. <laughs> I- You'd be pulling a David Lynch and going like, "Would you expand on this?" No. No. Yeah. <laughs> Never. I I love it. They're like, "No, I said what I had to say in my art," and you're gonna <laughs> take from that what you're going to take from and I and I I really really appreciate that cuz it was like famously they refused to really um con- until like you know very recently when they were like yeah it's a trans metaphor but uh famously for a long time they kind of refused to talk about the philosophy of the matrix and in interviews they would pretty much only ever want to talk about like 
the technical aspect of their directing mm-hmm. and and the effects that they were using, which you know, super groundbreaking at the time. And I, I don't know, I just I was like just the, yeah, the David Lynch quote. Just like, will you elaborate? No. <laughs> <laughs> I respect them for that so much. Yeah, I I do like when film like some of the, my most respected filmmakers are ones who kind of do like they they have a clear passion for what they do but they're not going to explain in more detail about what the film was like yeah right. they're not there well, um, and let's say every director who wants to talk about what their art is about is like this but you get whenever you hear is you hear directors do this kind of thing a lot of the time it just kind of starts to feel like the ego of art right i'm just like my art I, I is think- about this and it's deep in... See, I, I have a what? sneaking suspicion that some of the directors that um, do say, like, I won't elaborate or something like that is probably because it's just like, I don't know, I just I wrote it because I felt like it, I don't know. Right. What yeah, did this that, mean? I like the color blue, I don't know. <laughs> I, would say, I would say that's pretty accurate. One of the reasons why I respect David Lynch so much is because he's just a pure creative force of energy he is just as uh i guess unique and eccentric seeming in person as opposed to what you see in his films and his films are kind of pure creative expression but i also don't think there's no purpose with them i think he completely leaves them vague to interpret for the audience's own perspective but he does have a meaning for what he is putting forth yeah. If that makes sense. There is something to him. And I'm just going to say that I think Twin Peaks The Return is one of the greatest pieces of media ever created. Mm-hmm. And no, I will not elaborate on my love of it. Or well, maybe I will. But <laughs> I haven't seen it, but I should. It is 18 hours of pure Lynch craziness. And I awesome. absolutely fucking love it. It's so weird. Like, it. what I love about it is, and I won't spoil anything, it is... You know, it's I what I feel it's a tr- it was a commentary on the trend of reviving old properties. Interesting. It, where it's like the show intentionally has these moments of nostalgia that people love for the original Twin Peaks, and it dangles it in front of you the entire time. And when you do get it, it's not what you want it to be, but yeah. that's what makes it brilliant. It's like he knows. Um, his co-creator Mark Frost as well probably had some input with this as well but they know that the audience wants to see certain characters they interact they want the lead character to be a certain way they want things to happen and the show doesn't fucking give it to you even when it's giving it to you it doesn't fucking do it it does something different or it pulls it away instantly like oh look here's a little treat no fuck you <laughs> my um great shame as a horror person is that I actually have not seen all of Twin Peaks. You should. <laughs> I know. It, it deals with, like, I... I, I started it I forever it ago and I had to be in the right mindset. It. It, it is good, um, but, like, it deals with um, very graphic uh, depictions of violence and stuff like that. And so, like... You got to be in the right mindset for that. Right. It's it's interesting because I've heard people tell me like you know oh you like Gravity Falls Twin Peaks is basically just adult adult Gravity Falls basically and it's funny oh, yeah. because apparently um 
when Alex Hirsch was doing the casting for Gravity Falls, he originally wanted David Lynch to voice Bill Cipher, the main yeah. antagonist of the series. And, oh, and that would have been so cool. That, his Bill Cipher voice is just his impression of David Lynch. Right. Which I think is hilarious, because I don't think it sounds anything like David Lynch. It sounds... I always listen it to that voice. It sounds like more like... You. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. What are you saying, no. Jess? No, I was just going to say, when I hear that voice, I just hear him doing a precursor to his King voice from Owl House, so... Yeah. You, you know what I hear the impression of that's more accurate? With Bill, if we're going to say, like, Bill Cipher is doing a David Lynch, it's not doing a speaking David Lynch. It's doing a yelling David Lynch from Twin Peaks as Gor- Gordon Cole, the character he plays in it, who has a oh, hearing I problem who screams every line he does. Where it's like, yes. like uh, I, most, I can't do his voice. The most Age. interesting... <laughs> Go ahead. Just... The most interesting description I ever heard anybody give about Twin Peaks that made me really, really want to watch it was uh, I saw this on Twitter a little while ago. Someone said Twin Peaks is a great case study in how you make a TV show about a with a murderer or serial killer. I don't know what the twist with that is. Um, with while well, actually making it about his victim and not about the killer. Yes. Yeah. And that immediately made me want to, because I, anybody who knows me knows that my favorite thing in the world to talk about is, uh, is, is women in horror and uh, the like politics and feminist theory around the women that die and the women that live and the women that, so that's like my favorite subject matter in the world. So hearing that, I was like that, I am so fascinated by this. So I think you will love Twin Peaks. I genuinely do think you will love it. I think it, I think Lynch is such an empathetic and filmmaker. I, I love David Lynch, and yeah. I love Twi- and I love Gravity Falls, and I love this description that I've heard recently. So there's really yeah. no excuse for me not to have watched it. But mm-hmm. I I will say season two of Twin Peaks dips a little in quality after the halfway mark, only because that's when Lynch was so frustrated he left the show, and you can oh, just geez. tell that it's someone else running on autopilot. Um, and not doing the Lynchian things for it. But he comes back for the finale of season two, which is the best episode of the original run. And then the movie was panned at the time, but it has since been reevaluated, and I think it's phenomenal. And it's exactly what you're talking about with caring about the victim as opposed to, you know... The man that killed her. Right, it's about her. So. And that's what I, I care, because this is why I love horror, as, as, and I understand that Twin Peaks is not, like, strictly speaking a horror show, but this is what I love about the genre, is, is that it forces you to confront uh, violence against women, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it forces you to examine this about yourself, and if you are in the mood to be thoughtful, it really forces, you, you can think about it, and... I think so, yeah, that's more why, than anything else. I suspect that's why it was panned, is because they wanted to know more about the the present mystery. Um, instead, the the movie was a flashback, like how yeah, yeah uh, and and that's like upset everyone because they were hoping for more stuff about the present mystery. Without spoiling anything, it is simultaneously a prequel and a sequel, and yeah. it doesn't explain things to you. It's done in mm-hmm. Lynch's style. Yeah. So, I love Lynch's. I love David so Lynch's director. It's like, I love him so much. 
what's what's interesting about the original Twin Peaks is it's it's Lynch, but it's also very much structured like your normal television show. The mysteries unfold kind of normally. The show runs kind of like a typical soap opera with characters interacting with each other and stuff. It it but there are moments where it's just pure Lynch, which is where I love the show most, especially the season finale of season two. But um, I'm not going to spoil anything, but the movie is literally just Lynch going fucking crazy. And that's what season three, The Return, is. It's just Lynch being able to tell his way, his style of it. So what's so weird about Twin Peaks to me is it's like it's like three different like entities in one. It's like this weird soap opera thing. It's got like Lynch, like hardcore style, and then it's got like uh, like horror with a little bit of dark comedy. It's so weird. It's so over the place. Sorry, I could talk about Twin Peaks for a while. <laughs> um, or Lynch. I love his work. Um, this has been a movie podcast so far. My gosh. I haven't even gotten to talking about Korean cinema yet. Damn it. <laughs> well, it also... What's interesting to me about this is we have, sorry, I feel like I'm going to go on a tangent here. Now it's going to set us on such a different topic of conversation. I feel bad, but. No, we don't feel bad. This is where it goes. It's really. That's what happens every episode as we go on to several different topics. I, I, you know, every few months social media has, likes to go on its Ted Bundy, was he hot or not debate. No, the answer um, is no. And one of my proudest tweets that I will roll out every, I will roll out and retweet every single time was a, a joke I made about um, professional pictures of Ted Bundy versus like candid pictures of Ted Bundy from his friends and family, and how like wildly different he looks in them, and how it's like it's like hilarious. But uh, the direction I always, looks, in my opinion, like he's trying not to shit himself. <laughs> And I I don't understand why people think that's hot. I could do it too. You just pucker your lips and widen your eyes. I'm not going to tell you not to shit talk to Ted Bundy of all human beings, but (laughs) the real, the real point to me on that is always that is, is more, is more the way that, yeah, the, the social conversation around these people is always about these white men who murdered women. Yeah. And how nobody knows the names of almost any of the women Ted Bundy killed. True. And that's just so... I don't want to project a hope onto Twin Peaks that it will be based off that one tweet that I saw, that it will be this, but there's something so badly I want... But just, like, I want so badly at least a piece of media that takes to task that cultural tendency and the obsession with the male serial killer at the direct yeah. expense of the women that he kills and something like, and then the modern like fetish sort of cultural fetishization of true crime. And I'm not saying you're a bad person if you're interested in this stuff, but the, the tendency to just like put all this fascination and fetishization and sexualization onto this, the men that murdered women and zero thought, like barely a passing thought to the scores of women that they killed. Mm-hmm. And what their lives were. Yeah. I, I like true crime, but, like, I, I'm i very picky because, yeah, they tend to go, like, into super graphic detail 
about very recent stuff. And I'm like, I don't know if I was one of the people that were hurt or knew someone that was murdered. I don't know if I'd want to hear about how she was stabbed or something like that rather than just, and then she died moving on. And I say this as someone who's like a huge Rob Zombie fan because so much of Rob Zombie's art, I will say in general music, film, whatever is kind of like this. Um, but it's just, I was going a whole other separate tangent. My one of my favorite uh, notes my one of my writing professors ever gave me was that you have so much to say and you try and say it all at once. And I'm like, yeah, I know. So mm-hmm. watch me do that as I talk. Um, one of my favorite things people give Rob Zombie's Halloween movies a really bad rap, but one of my favorite things about it is that it kind of does this. Is it's like, no, look at this woman he tried to kill. Look at what that did to her. <laughs> especially Halloween 2, which is just, like, about look at what it's like to be a woman who's a victim of a violent man. Mm-hmm. Look at what the, that will do to your mind and your body and your existence and your experience of the world. And I, I wish more media about serial killers, be they real or fictional, put the emphasis on that. Because it's always, it's so much of it is the glorification of how this man, what was in this man's head when he murdered women, and I'm so much more interested to me about the, when you make these, these stories are so much more interesting to me when it's about the women who were victims of the, of the violence. Yeah, and right. I think this I weird just... fetishization, like you're saying, also contributes to, like, there's like a level of infamy if you become one of these known serial killers that I think is exciting to people who are, I'm not going to say it creates other killers, but I do think that that level of infamy is seductive to people who have an inclination to do horrible things. Yes. I don't think it create it makes people commit violence. I think right. that it inspires people who were already going to do that. Yes. I think it's yes. which is the point, kind of the point of the screen movies. Right. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Yes. Yeah, I have a, I do, a, I tend to have that issue with movies that focus primarily on wanting the audience to sympathize with this horrible, god awful person. This is why I'm one of the those weirdos you meet who didn't like Joker because of that. I did. This is exactly why I didn't like Joker because. Okay, yeah, I'm because, not a fan of that movie either. Like because it, most of it was just this. I want to say whiny because he was whiny. <laughs> like it, this it, it whiny was... asshole of a person like just latching out against the world, but there's nothing interesting about it because I don't it's nothing like people are acting like this movie was such a revolution and it's like I've seen this before. I've seen movies try to paint a character like this so sympathetically and it's like ah, it, but it, it wasn't a... about a popular supervillain but, but it was like and he said the line about society so therefore it's deep and this movie has, and a version of this has been done better that's a, there's been plenty that's done it better that movie is a pale mostly. imitation of, of the, the movie's a pale imitation of scorsese yeah like, scorsese it, Scorsese knows how to make movies that focus on horrible people and do it right. Yeah. Well, Todd Phillips wanted to make a Scorsese movie. He didn't want to make a Todd Phillips movie. He wanted to make a Scorsese film. But he's not Scorsese. Scorsese. I have nothing against a movie focusing on someone who's horrible, but the minute they're telling me, feel 
sad for him. This is society's fault. <laughs> well, the thing is, I, I've i never seen it, but I have, like, a, a repel, repellation against it, because my ex was obsessed with that movie. And um, I, um, I take... Uh, medication for mental illness stuff and I was and then my insurance went out and so I was just like venting and I was like ah you know what if I don't get my meds and and then he looked at me and he was like have you seen Joker and I was like <laughs> what and so I looked it up and I was like you think I'm gonna kill people is that what's going on it's ADHD medication question? I'm just gonna be sleepy right it's like I don't know it's like I'm not going to kill people because I'm, uh, like, ugh. I, I feel gross that you think that of me. Jokerism. Oh, go ahead. I was, I was just going to say, you can, like, there's nothing wrong with you make, making a piece of art that asks you to feel sympathy for a bad person. But right. there's a an art specifically to doing that. And just being like, well, they were really kind. Joker comes across much more as um he was justified in what he was doing. And that can never be the thesis of what you're saying when you're trying to tell these stories. When you look at the best versions of it, when you look at Breaking Bad, when you look at the Godfather movies, when you yeah. look at like the, the the point is to you need to emphasize the emptiness and po- ultimately really pointlessness of what has happened. Right, because I I like plenty of movies that do focus on characters that aren't good people, like and they're but the reason why I like them is because there's there's the director knows how to explore the character's journey and make you at the very least understand how the character got to this point not necessarily not necessarily saying they're right in what they did because yeah, that's t- yeah like, just, I, i'm with you there just um you know it's uh, it's just a, a movie that was not well written like right, if we're gonna say like bottom line it's just there's Todd Phillips is not a good writer. He's right. just and, not. And, and it I doesn't think he's a perfectly competent director, but he's not. Yes. He's right. not, not Martin Scorsese, and he's not a good right. writer. Right. The direction in that movie was fine. It wasn't. It wasn't amazing, and I think um, Joaquin Phoenix's performance is overrated, personally. But well, I think it's Phoenix's great. But it's just the best part of the movie. movie. Yeah. But it's the only part of the movie that's really good. That's maybe the cinematography. He's desperately trying to inject some soul into this, like utterly hack movie right yeah. but and like, i, I, say this I think the, it, by the way i don't hate i don't hate joker i had a perfectly good time watching that movie um but <laughs> the way people talk about the way the fanboys talk about it also here's here's another little piece of context joker came out in the fall of 2019 when i was the only woman in my auteur theory class so oh, it was no. it was the most exhausting conversation of my like entire school career it was laughable to me that that movie got a Best Picture nomination. Like, I was like, really? Out of everything else, it's like, you're nominating Joker for Best Picture? Okay. Didn't it break a record? Wasn't it, like, the most num- single nominations in a fil- film had in, like, X number so. of years? I think so, but it didn't... Uh, aside from... It didn't I guess win make, much. I guess, I guess, ignoring my bias, the one... The two awards that I think it actually deserved the nominations for were best actor and even wins were best actor for Joaquin Phoenix and um, best original score because the score for that movie was great. I liked it. Yeah. Like it was genuinely good, 
Um, I just have a problem with, like, I have no problem with the direction, I have no problem with the performances, I have no problem with the technical aspects, I have a problem with that fucking script is where my issues start. Like, and another thing, the biggest problem I have is, like, you want to make a movie that focuses on a villain and you want us to feel sympathy for this villain. The Joker is one of the last characters I could see that working for, like. Yeah, his whole thing is that, like... That's that's the reason why uh, him and Batman's relationship is so complex is because Batman is like, no, 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 there's good in everybody. And Joker's like, ha ha, no, there isn't. Fuck you. You have the tragedy of all of Batman's other villains. Right. Like, And then the, that's why the Joker is kind of like his arch nemesis is because the Joker. Yeah, there's the Red Hood. Uh, back backstory some people like to go with I've always been pretty firmly on team the Joker shouldn't have a back shouldn't have an origin story he shouldn't and I don't think the, he should here's here's the funny thing there is a Batman movie with a villain who had who had a tragic story who I felt bad for in the end and that was in the Dark Knight Harvey Dent Harvey Dent oh, yeah. like Harvey that, Dent yeah well listen all of Batman's other villains the rest of Batman's rogues gallery are tr- are, are are tragedies mm-hmm and there's so many characters. Y'all don't want to get me started on my Harley Quinn love train. Yes, uh, I, I love Harley. Harley Quinn. But there's so many characters in Batman's rogues gallery you could make this kind of a movie with. Mo- probably most notably, uh, honestly, Poison Ivy, who I think comics fandom as a whole has come around to the fact that Poison Ivy is simply not a villain. Because she's correct. Yeah. She's an eco-terrorist. She's doing bad things, but I feel like everyone's kind of collectively agreed at this point that Poison Ivy is much more of an anti-hero than a villain. Yeah, and I think a lot of her portrayals in recent media have kind of reflected that, especially um, the show? in the uh, yeah the Harley Quinn TV show. Mm-hmm. Like uh, Poison Ivy is a lot more sympathetic and is easily my favorite character. Even easily my favorite character in the show is Poison Ivy. She's great. The only pe- also, the only people she actually kills are uh, specifically like rich like billionaire ceos who are the one <laughs> percent yeah the one percent and so that that's it makes it really easy to remain sympathetic to a character who's a serial killer see you can do it you can make it happen yeah. you just have to make the character yeah. a woman the yeah. moment that the serial killer is a woman you've given me a thousand more reasons to be sympathetic <laughs> to what she's doing but i think the problem with the joke with making it, it's kind of funny though because harley quinn also has the joker in it in season two they kind of humanized the Joker a bit, and I didn't hate it actually. <laughs> I, yeah, but they did that. I haven't seen it at all yet, so please don't spoil. But yeah, I same. will. See I won't spoil, but I will say I did kind of like the Joker by the end of season two. I was oh yeah, like, for once I didn't hate an attempt to make the joke, especially in relation to Harley Quinn. Mm-hmm. But I think um, it for also, once I didn't hate. Yeah, I think it helps that Harley Quinn establishes itself as a series primarily as a comedy, so. <laughs> You yeah, have, you have kind um, of the default advantage of you're not going to take this, a lot of it seriously. Every character is not, I mean, it's different, right? I mean, every character is different from their comic adaptation. I mean, they still kept a sympathetic angle for Mr. Freeze, which Mr. Freeze was also a favorite character of mine in that show. They did a great job with him. And he's, I think he's, they did a great job with every character on that show. There wasn't a yeah. single choice they made that I was mad about. Yeah, like, I was happy they kept the sympathetic angle for Mr. Freeze, and the fact that Alfred Molina fucking Doc Doc, Doc Ock plays him is the best thing ever. Um, but, okay, 
Crystal, do me a favor and watch the Harley Quinn show because I would be. There's nothing in the world I'd love more than to just dedicate a whole episode to talking about that Let's show. I will that. like rewatch oh, that would it. Be with so you. fun. That would be. And so we fun. can just spend an episode going over the because sh- I could do that. I, I loved that show. It was one of my favorite shows of the last like ten years. Hell yeah. Um, so I will. I will definitely finish it, and we will plan this. Yeah. Um. After I finish Invincible, because I'm still going through that, oh, but yeah, I, I will watch, watch that, that show. I need to finish that one. I liked. I liked what I saw of Invincible. Oh, I have so many great. things I need to watch. But also, the other angle that I remember everyone praising Joker for that frustrated me was this, like, thing of it, oh, well, it's it's the tale of, of someone, of, like, a, a person going insane and the tragedy of that. And I'm like, there are better movies, there are other movies that do this and do it better. Even if you is... want to, like, talk about the themes of that film, like, the idea of the class struggle... You know, there was a better movie that came out at the same award season. Like a <laughs> and one best picture. Covered it, one best picture. Yeah, like, Parasite did the class struggle thing so much better than Joker. Infinitely more interesting. Way better. Um, Does, and if any, if, Real quick, if anybody listening wants to see a movie about a um, mentally ill social outcast who uh, becomes a serial killer, a much better one I recommend is May. Hmm. directed okay. by Lucky McGee, it's really good. It's well, also an adaptation of Frankenstein. Yeah, so. I'll have to watch that one. But okay. yeah, it's like, it's it's weird because the thing that, that really bothers me about Joker is that it's touting itself as this super adult movie with the R rating because as we know, the adult movies have the R rating, yet its plot structure and how it presents information is so juvenile, for lack of a better word. Like, it's... I, I don't this... really, yeah, I don't really like placing this word too much on a lot of movies because I don't think it's fair. But it, the pretentiousness of that it film is, is palpable it's... because it's like, even what Tom, what Tom Phillips was saying is like, oh, I may, I, I can, I, you know, I tricked the studio into making a real movie, you yeah, know, that's the like, thing just like snuck it in, like it's like you really desperately want to be a Scorsese. You want to be like an auteur, but you don't have the skills and the ability to look inward enough to make an honest film. Like, this is so, not honest. It's so not. There's, a, there's a scene in this movie that was potentially really good, but they fucked it up based on presentation. Like, So there's a scene where he goes to the apartment of the girl who was the love interest throughout most of this movie. We've had many scenes with them together. And, like, she's freaked out seeing him. And, like, based on how, she, how she's talking and the reactions... An audience member can get that he was that every scene between him and her was in his head. It never happened. Like this this was the point where it's like, oh, that's what happened. But because this movie doesn't trust its audience to fucking think, it has to spell it out for you by showing the scenes from previously in the movie only going, look, see, she actually wasn't there, you see. I'm like, I hate that I, so much. That was the part of the movie that could have been, that actually could have turned this into a great film. It could have. It's like you could have this great movie that forces you because that could have been the moment where we're ge- as the audience are genuinely forced to question the reliability of our narrator. Right. But, but Todd Phillips doesn't actually want to do that. No, because he wants to spell it out for the audience, even though he's allegedly making an R-rated movie for yeah, alleged like, adults. But even even beyond just the laziness of that, like specifically, this was the moment where it suddenly could have been like, maybe 
our percent, what the version of events we've seen that have made everything that this character has been, Arthur, everything Arthur's been doing throughout the movie seem justified. Maybe it wasn't. Right, and it could. This is the moment when we're supposed to question that, and he doesn't let us do that at all. And you could have done that for like the rest of the movie. You could like you could like play with the idea of is the rest of the movie even real? Did he actually go on the Robert De Niro's talk show? Did he actually shoot him? What like? But yeah, something to actually like force us to question the reliability of our narrative. But the only thing that Todd Phillips is using that scene for is to make us feel worse for the character. Right, like oh he made up he made up a he made up a relationship in his head. Oh. Darn. <laughs> and and the reliability of the narrator is something you could even play with with the Joker. I mean, here's I mean, the, like in the past, he's done that in the comics, here's right? The funny like, thing. here's the following. Here's the funny thing. The following year, Birds of Prey came out, and it and it played with an unreliable narrator trope well, with Harley's narration throughout really, the movie. Really, really well. Yeah, and that was the that was so fun. That was one of the best aspects of that movie is the fact that Harley is so unreliable as the narrator. It's so good, and it's, it's like... It's kind of like like what you said, Crystal, which is that Todd Phillips wants to be this, like, great interest... Like, this, he wants to be this artist, this auteur, this really introspective filmmaker, but he doesn't, he, he doesn't have the vision or the artistic creativity... Or, the, or even the, the honesty, right? Or self-honesty yeah. to, like, really make something. So, because if you want to make a movie like Joker work... What it has to ultimately, like, Joker has to be the bad guy. It has to be a villain's journey, and it's not. You and want me to perceive him as the misunderstood hero because Dalmatians ate his mother. <laughs> I was about to mention Cruella, and you were right on cue with that one. And I read, I read a plot synopsis of that movie because I'm not going to pay and see it, but not to spoil anything, but from what I've seen, they made the exact same mistakes, and I'm like... Oh, I knew they would. They, I knew they'd make the same mistakes Joker did. And I am, and I don't know whether to shame Disney or actually applaud them for the balls here. It's like. <laughs> it's, so it, it's just a matter of like, you need to, if you want to make art like this, it has to be uncomfortable. And Todd Phillips didn't actually want the film to be uncomfortable <laughs> because that would require him to be uncomfortable. Right. And. I think that is a... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to mention... I was going to snidely mention how how Todd, Todd just just said he... Remember how he said he quit com, com, doing comedies because woke culture was ruining everything and he can't. everyone's too afraid to be funny nowadays? So, you know... You made yeah, the movie, buddy. I it's, can't think of sucked. any modern comedies except all of them. Right, it's like, gee, it's not I like comedy. Re- I at least like Seth Rogen recently was like, is no, you evolve with the time and you make comedy that works. Like, I know, to the I time. love it because like, comedy doesn't age well, and you have to deal with that. Yeah, like, you can either... Taiki Wat, uh, I'm, I'm terrible with names, the Taiki Wat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he's thriving right now because he's amazing. Right. He like... said it. Todd Phillips said at the same time of the year when Taika Waititi made Jojo Rabbit, a film yeah. where a Hitler, comedy about Nazis. Hitler yeah. is the is comedic. That is the yeah. <laughs> I still need to see all of Jojo Rabbit. I've seen bits and pieces of it, and it looks like it's right up my alley. So yeah. I should yeah, see it. Yeah, I haven't it. seen it, but I need to. I there's so many things I need to watch. I just sometime 
probably within this coming week, I'm just going to be like, I'm not leaving my house. I need to catch up on everything. Nothing bothers me more in this comedian, in that whole, oh, comedians can't make jokes conversation anymore, more than, like, people like, well, the jobs of comedians are to take risks. It's like, yeah, and you're telling me I'm supposed to take the risk factor. You're like, you're you're telling me I need to cushion them and take the risk factor away. The risk of being a comedian is that people aren't going to think what you're saying is fucking funny. Yeah, it's no, but you have to praise the comedian at at all times. It's all about their ego. You have to, they're, they're, you know, they need to be babied. They need to be loved at all times while they They also call safe spaces, which is stage. And keep in mind, you could still do offensive humor. I mean, Bill Burr practically runs his entire career on offending people. And it's like, but he has, it's usually because his offensive comments lead to a point. Like, there's like, like, um, if you watch, um, I think it's Paper Tiger is what it's called. One of my favorite comedy specials in the last few years, just because it's it's offensive humor, but it's kind of building up to him kind of figuring out that he's kind of a, he's kind of a prick. <laughs> well, much like how Todd Phillips desperately wants to be Martin Scorsese, every comedian wants to be George Carlin. But again, yeah. they, do, they don't yeah. understand that in order to make art like this and make it successfully, you need to have you need to have empathy. Yeah, they don't understand like, what made George Carlin work, as they think they think that being a it's just being a dick. And it's like no, the like, heart of shocking and 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 controversial art needs to be empathy. Yeah, yeah. To go back to Bill Burr, one of my favorite jokes in Paper Tiger is he was t- telling a story of how he and his wife um were watching an Elvis documentary, and throughout the whole time, his wife was saying how racist Elvis is, like how like how he committed a lot of cultural appropriation, and you think. In, in any other context with a, with a lesser comedian, the joke would have been, oh, wife stupid. No, the joke turns out Bill is making a fool of himself trying to defend, like, Elvis's bullshit here. Like, like he thinks he's going to get he's going to get a one up on his wife, but she keeps making good points and keeps putting him in his place. So and like, I think that's why John Mulaney is thriving is because, like, his jokes usually aren't like edgy or anything like that it's mostly wholesome and yeah he's thriving now well and we don't have to get into the tragedy of of john mulaney getting divorced but someone made a really good point recently in the wake of that about how part of what made john mulaney's comedy so enjoyable for a lot of people is that instead of falling back on the tired my wife is a bitch and i hate her jokes his entire shtick was my wife is a bitch and i love her yeah (laughs) and there's just something so refreshing about that and and also it was more like i personally i hate comedians where it's like i'm smart everyone else is dumb yeah and john mulaney kind of flipped it on his head of just like no i'm dumb i like i'm the weird one Mm all righty that's probably we should probably before we we talk think, too much more about a million I, things. Yeah. I think if we had the time, we would probably sit here talking for like three hours. Probably. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so this was another fantastic episode of the Gals of Geekdom podcast. Um, would everybody like to go around and plug their pluggables, where you can find you, what you do, all that good stuff? Uh, you can I don't find exist, me. So, oh. <laughs> You can find me you over on. You have to conjure me by saying my name three times, like Beetlejuice. <laughs> you can find me over on Twitter on on at Lady Jazzington or on YouTube uh, with the name Jazzy Oliver. Busy. Uh, 
You can find me basically anywhere I want you to find me at Lizzie Lemon Drop. Um, uh, on my Twitter bio, uh, you'll see the link to my website. Please go there to read some of my writing. Uh, and then you can also find me there on TikTok. Uh, TikTok is 90% shitposting, but uh, I sometimes talk I sometimes talk a lot about movies on there. So please, uh, please do follow that. me on those places. You're great. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, Steph, do you want to tell where people where they can fo- follow you? And uh, I am at Overactor on Twitter um, and Dramatic Comedian on TikTok. Uh, and that's all I could think of. I probably have a bunch, but I've forgotten what they cool. were. So the people people will follow you. Please, yeah. gals and listeners, go do that. Do it now. Do it now. D- yeah. Now. And then, um, so <laughs> I am, <laughs> I am the last your your original co host, uh, co creator of the show, Crystal Williams. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter at Crystal W Rocks. That's spelled with C H R. W-R-O-X, you can find me there. You can also find Crystal Williams on Medium, where you can read my articles, or you can find me in the multiple appearances I made in the Violet Wanderers podcast, which is another great show I recommend you going to over to listen to. And we will have them on our show at some point. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> yes, so that they, they're great. Um, great people. But yeah, you can just follow me there, and that's all I have. If you want to hear more stupid stuff from me. <laughs> well, anyway, thank you so much, Steph, Stephanie, for being on the show. We loved no having you. Having it was so much fun. And we, until next time, this is the Gals of Geekdom, and we're signing off. Bye. Bye. You can't see me wave.